Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agdarab. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. We'll hear an excerpt from Amy Odin when she served as faculty during Spiritual Formation in Today's World, a year-long online offering that took place in 2021. Born and raised on the prairies of Oklahoma, Amy has found her spiritual home under the wide open sky. She earned her PhD in Religious Studies at Southern Methodist University, writing her dissertation on Augustine. Over the last 30 years, she has served on the faculties of Oklahoma City University, St. Paul School of Theology, and Wesley Theological Seminary, that's my alma mater, where she also served as dean. She's now an itinerant professor teaching at several schools in the areas of theology and history of Christianity and spiritual formation. She is also a spiritual director, companioning people as they listen for God in day-to-day life. Amy is committed in her scholarship to illuminating ancient voices for Christian life today introducing spiritual practices that can ground and nourish lives of following Jesus into the world. Her most recent book is Right Here, Right Now, The Practice of Christian Mindfulness. In this episode, Amy quotes Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman and his speech, The Sound of the Genuine. And I found myself quoting the very same concept to my 22-year-old niece who is just figuring things out. She's figuring out income, where to live, who to live with, and ultimately what the next right step is for her. We all need this time, right? To listen to the sound of the genuine, the soul, our gut, lest we find ourselves at the end of strings that someone else pulls. But how can we carve out space to listen when all around us the noise just grows? And it's not empty noise either. It's about important things. Our very bodies and how much autonomy we have over them. How to make decisions over our own health care. Whether or not we can access health care. It's hard to listen because it's hard to pause because it's hard to feel. So I want to invite you. Mindful of all the very important things you are carrying and that you care about. To breathe. Breathe deeply and expand gently. And if you hear anything in these next few moments, may it lead to a growing awareness that the longings of your spirit are important to God and to the world. Now, another challenge is our... Uh, pace of life, our, our busyness, our sense of productivity. I'm encouraged that during this time of pandemic, I think we're seeing some folks step back and rethink that. Um, at the same time, the pandemic has increased uh, the workload for a lot of people. Uh, you know, being home with children that are trying to do school from home, and you know, it, it, it's a very challenging time. Um, But today's world, uh, the 21st century, still values your productivity, that 
our worldview is that people are valuable to the degree they are useful. That it's, um, and this really becomes uh, exaggerated since the industrial revolution. So for about the last 400 years, increasingly seeing human beings as utilities, right? As to be used to, as a means towards some other end to produce something, to get something done. And so your value and all the messaging you've received all your life, the rewards you've received has been for what can you get done? Have you checked off your list? What do you have to show for it, right? What are the results? Let's assess and get some measures of what's been accomplished and tell us your accomplishments, right? So productivity, accomplishment, and busyness um, is very much the identity that the world tells you that's who you are, uh, which then also plays into our developing this muscle of responding and reacting to external stimuli. So all of those things make it very difficult to pause, to be present to yourself, to your body, to your experience, or to any kind of inner wisdom that is speaking. The other piece, um, and I talk about this in the first chapter of, of my book, Right Here, Right Now. Um, I think the other experience that has really been heightened um, in, I would say in the last 20 years is a sense of reactivity. Um, and we know this perhaps most poignantly in our current political climate in the United States, that, that as people become polarized, they become more reactive. And so we have escalating reactivity. You know, one uh, political party says X and the other one says X squared and the other one says X cubed, right? It's an exponential kind of escalation back and forth, which is reflects a very anxious inflamed system. Um, you think about your autoimmune system as, you know, e once it gets triggered and gets inflamed, then it can escalate very quickly. We can see that in social systems as well. And we have been um, taught uh, to really focus in reactivity on what we like and we don't like, right? That like button on Facebook or Twitter uh, is our reactivity. We are Jedi masters. We are trained to immediately know if we like something or not, that that's the most important thing we can know about something is whether we like it or we don't like it. Okay. That again, neurological training has created architecture in our brain, <laughs> neurological, so that we become identified with it. And we think what we like uh, is who we are. And what we like then uh, binds us to other people who like the same thing. And um, so that kind of reactivity prevents us. I would say reactivity, in fact, is like a set of chains that, that, holds us captive from the kind of freedom that allows us to pause, do a body scan or an awareness scan, and then listen for God's voice, for the sound of the genuine, for the honkings of God, for to listen for that deep calling into being. 
Um, and so I think reactivity is one of the hardest pieces because again, this has almost become so hardwired in our brain. Um, that's a challenge for our formation in today's world. I think we also, because of all of these things, we tend to be little, those inner, those inner nudges, those hunches, those, uh, you know, vague honkings that we can barely hear, um, or that, that when they begin to emerge, we tend to belittle them or judge them or even condemn them, right? If I have a longing start to rise in me for connection, say uh, just a real hunger to connect authentically and deeply with friends, I immediately, I don't have time for that. I have more things to do, right? I, I judge it, I condemn it, I reject it, or I belittle it. Like, well, that's selfish. You know, why, what is that? Uh, and, and, can, and so our reactivity and our responsiveness to the sensory overload um, has, I think, led to making it harder and harder to be attentive and aware of the ways God gets our attention. And so I realize I'm painting a pretty dire picture here, but I want to name this partly so that we don't all personalize, like, why can't I be mindful? You know, why can't I be like super spiritual and pray all the time? <laughs> uh, and so I want us to see that this isn't, it isn't any kind of spiritual failure on anyone's part to not be mindful. It's the reality of the kind of formation that we are all in all the time in uh, certainly Western culture in the 21st century. And so partly what we do I think as a way to survive as well is to have kind of escape mechanisms. I mean, we can press the pause button on sensory overload uh, long, you know, often just simply by distracting ourselves. Um, and so sometimes that does mean, you know, binging Netflix, uh, which again, draws us into screens but at least it gives us a break from the multiple sensory overload watching something on Netflix actually is focusing. Now, if you watch something on Netflix and you text and you respond to your boss on email, right, then it doesn't have that function. Um, but the other escape is anger. Uh, and I would say particularly outrage. Outrage uh, is also an addiction in our brains. Outrage feels really good. It actually produces dopamine. Uh, and then we need more of it and more of it. Uh, and so anger and outrage, I think, can also function actually as an escape. Um, now, let me say anger is important. Holy anger is a, is a high, is an important motivating emotion. So this is not uh, to say all anger is bad. Anger that is used to escape being present in my own life um, is very dangerous and corrosive. And so particularly when we think about outrage in social media, for example, really allows us to have that feeling of superiority. That's what makes it feel so good. If I'm outraged, I have the moral upper hand, right? I know I would never do that horrible thing. I would never say that horrible words or whatever that other person did, right? So outrage functions actually to take us out of ourselves, away from ourselves and finger point and uh, blame and focus on others. And that's a distraction. That's, that's sort of an escape. And then the third escape that we probably experience the most is just numbing. Um, and, and 
numbing is maybe in some ways the most dangerous of all. It's very difficult sometimes to get out of, of numbing cycles. And that can be, you know, I'm just drinking a lot more instead of one glass a night, every few, you know, one glass of wine, every few evenings, I'm drinking two glasses of wine, three glasses of wine, just to go to sleep. Or it can mean uh, numbing in uh, busyness. Busyness is a main numbing strategy. Um, so I don't ever have to pause and think. I don't want to pause and feel. I'm just going to stay busy. Busy is a good numbing addiction. Um, numbing can show up um, through gossip. Um, that if I'm always talking about somebody else, then I, I am pulled away and can be numbed. But most often, numbing um, takes more passive forms and can actually uh, show up in depression um, as well. And, and some of these will sound familiar to you. Some will not. Um, but I, I want to just remind us, as we talk about longing, that we've got some big challenges to recognize our longings, that we have constant messaging uh, from every source uh, that we need to have more, right? If you would just on, on uh, you know, Instagram, if your life would just look like that, if you could have, you know, if, if, if my husband could just be a better person, if I could have more of, you know, the house that I want that looks like that, right? All of those messages that keep us focused on, um, uh, consumption and productivity, I think, are all big challenges in today's world. So I want to name them and get them in front of us because they all end up giving us false narratives about who we are. And they all play into, you know, false narratives about um, our fundamental belovedness as children of God. Um, now, I want to add to that the cultural messages uh, that value some people more than others, right? Where we get very subtle, very pervasive, very insidious cultural messages that are telling uh, white people that, that we're valuable, we're entitled to public space, we're entitled to jobs, um, until often other people um, that aren't white you're not entitled to public space. You're not entitled to economic stability. I mean, so the, the whole set, when we think about economic and political challenges, add another set of sort of messages that, that it's just hard for us to grasp, I think, how deeply hardwired they become in our brain architecture. So I want to turn to scripture with that as a, as a kind of just reminding us of some of that cultural landscape. Um, I want to turn to scripture and look at a scripture story that's very familiar to you that you know well, but to listen to this story as a story of longing and to listen with ears, to look for the two, the, the different longings of the different people in the story. And this is um, Luke 15, sometimes called the prodigal son. Um, I call it the story of the two lost sons. You may recognize in these, the people in this story, um, you may recognize some of your own longing, but as you can see, longing doesn't always show up as longing. 
right? It shows up as these decisions we make and behaviors we undertake and resentments we harbor, right? And rebellions that we pursue. Um, and so I think recognizing longing is often uh, means we've got to look beneath the surface of the choices we're making and our life circumstances to see the roots, right, that go deep, the roots of longing um, that often emerge in those ways of, you know, the, of leaving home or of resenting the dad um, or of longing just to see your son's face again alive, right? Any of those. In our traditions um, across 2000 years of Christian history, one way of talking about recognizing um, God's work in us is often the literature of the two ways or recognizing two ways. And it's often framed as the way that leads to life and the way that leads to death, the two ways. And so very early, even in uh, by the year about 120 CE, we have a document, the Didache, that has this literature in it of there's the way that leads to life. And then they talk about what that uh, is and the way that leads to death. And what is that way? But this two ways literature, the way of life and the way of death, um, is also a literature that predates Christianity. And many, many ancient cultures have this we can see that it's oversimplified in its binary setup, right? The way that leads to life and the way that leads to death. But in this, it is intended to be kind of a tool that is very clarifying, right? To help us see what we might not see otherwise. So I wanna talk about <clears throat> each of these. And now I'm apologizing and frustrated because I've redone this slide three times and it's still, <laughs> Not what I thought it would be, it'll, but it'll be fine. So the way that leads to life is the way that brings us aliveness and, and helps us know that feeling of being alive. Um, you know, one of the most popular quotes these days uh, from the early church is from Irenaeus, you know, to be uh, to the glory of God is the human being alive right? That sense of the image of God in us really shining through. That's a sense of aliveness. And so we know we're on the way that leads to life when we have those experiences of aliveness or a sense of freedom, that is of not being bound and held captive to our reactivities, to our unconscious drives, uh, right? To the things that um, can prevent us from loving ourselves, our neighbor and God all of those things that keep us from being free. So the way that leads to life is, is the way of freedom. It's the way of leading our lives that are real, not fake. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and do this so I can go through the list more easily. So the way that leads to life is that sense of being real rather than being false, having to pretend, having to constantly prop up some projection of ourselves, right? As perfect or productive or whatever. Um, and instead being able to be real and authentic. And um, if you know much about a lot of popular culture today, there's a whole, I would say a whole kind of area of popular culture really focused on storytelling 
And, um, and you can think of all the podcasts that do storytelling that are really about wanting to be authentic and share stories of real life. The way that leads to life uh, in our, again, our spiritual traditions says it's a way of being rooted, that when we are rooted, um, it, it is the way that leads to life. That is, we are, we are grounded rather than scattered or fractured. You know, I think um, in that first chapter of Right Here, Right Now, I talk about the young dad who used this image of puzzle pieces. He says, I feel like my life is just a set of like jigsaw puzzle pieces that I carry around and I'm not sure they even all go to the same puzzle. And then every once in a while, somebody just sticks another piece on there and I have no idea. I don't have any sense of being whole right? Or any center that holds. Um, and so the way that leads to death means the way that is not alive, that is not um, whole. The way that leads to life um, is a way that connects us to the whole world, to each other and to God, right? Where we have a connectedness to something bigger than ourselves and to the communities we're in. Um, and the way that leads to death is often that experience of being disconnected, isolated, right? We know when we feel, especially during this pandemic, we've really felt that, that loss of connection. The, the theological words for these, particularly in the Ignatian spiritual tradition, but across spiritual traditions of Christianity, um, is, is consolation and desolation, and so as you read spiritual formation literature, you'll come across these words, consolation and desolation as the way that leads to life or the way that leads to death. And what can be so, I think, difficult to recognize our longings is that our longings show up on both of those sides of these columns, right? That it's often when I feel trapped and stuck, only then am I aware of my longing for freedom, right? It's not always in the experience of freedom that I know my longing. Sometimes it's in the experience of being trapped, feeling stuck in my own life, like it's just closing in and there's no way out. Then I can start to, to be aware of a longing to truly be free. And so that's why it's important to pay attention to all of these experiences, because all of these experiences can be guides, can guide us uh, to be attentive and recognize what we are truly longing for underneath the, the younger brother, the older brother, the dad, you know, whatever the, the, the family drama is. Um, and the other thing to notice here, and our spiritual teachers tell us this over and over, is that the way that leads to life it does not always equal the easy way that feels good. Right. Sometimes being authentic and real means speaking the truth to power. It's risky. It's scary. Uh, it, it may not feel very good. I may know I'm going to lose some friends for the things I'm going to say. I may alienate. Right. So it's so the way that leads to life isn't necessarily warm and fuzzy. And the way that leads to death isn't always hard or feel bad. I mean, when that younger, younger son left, he had some pretty good times. It felt pretty good to be disconnected, right? And to be uh, disconnected from his family and, and to feel a, a false sense of freedom, right? When in fact, he was just ensnaring himself further in some other things. So recognition, being able to recognize beyond just what feels good or feels bad or beyond what's easy and difficult, 
um, is part of the work of recognizing our longings and having uh, kind of some language to begin to name and see uh, to make visible. Howard Thurman uh, says, I'm gonna quote him again, and we use this quote, I think, in the curriculum for this particular session. Uh, when he describes how we recognize the, our longings, he says, don't ask what the world needs, right? That's the market question. That's the, right? That's when you ask, well, let's survey everybody in the congregation and see what they want, right? Let's survey the neighborhood and see what the world needs, right? That's a marketing trying to uh, question. Or I may think, well, what are the jobs that are the fastest growing out there? And then I'll go to college and do that major and get that job, right? That's what does the world need? And he says, don't ask, that, that's the wrong question. Ask what makes you come alive. That's actually a much harder question for most of us. Um, what makes you come alive and go do it? So ask what makes you come alive and go do it. And recognizing your longing is gonna be tied to what makes you come alive. And longing is gonna root you there and is gonna stabilize you there and is gonna call you back to it when, when you uh, move too far into the path that leads to death. And he goes on to say, because what the world needs is people who have come alive, right? Ultimately, it is our own listening and fidelity to God's call, God's presence, God's that sound of the genuine, our fidelity, our faithfulness to that, that blesses the whole world. It is not for us alone. Our longings are not just for us, right? They are for all of creation, ultimately. And so, what blesses the world is people who have come alive. Um, that's actually quoted by Gil Bailey in a, in a book Gil Bailey wrote. He quotes Thurman there. So if you want to track down that quote, that's where it is. Our practices of being present in our own lives, I think, um, can be really helped by simple, mindful breathing techniques. And you all are learning these. They're everywhere in the culture right, to breathe mindfully, um, and you're learning them at work, at school, you know, at yoga, it, from your therapist, um, and I, I think it's part of the way God is trying to wake us up in our whole culture, is by reminding us of the importance of breathing, and that breath is something you have with you everywhere you go, and so when Jesus invites us to have eyes to see and ears to hear, He's inviting us to pay attention. scrolling through old posts on social media and I came across Morgan Harper Nichols words. Let July be July. Let August be August and let yourself just be. That is my hope for us in these long summer days that we might allow ourselves to fully show up, to surface, to poke through, 
May our longings make themselves known, and may they be part of the greater love transformation our whole world so desperately needs. Share this podcast with others. May it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions and longings you've held, and a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Amy, join us at the next online or in-person Academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.